they did fight back. Clarence Jones was a speechwriter, and he told Powell, if you go to the press with those lies, here's what I'm finna do. I'm finna go up to Harlem and litter it, litter it with posters of all the women you slept with. You are now listening to another episode of the Kinky Heathen Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Kinky Heaton Podcast. I'm your host, Jara Heaton. Today, we're doing something a little different. We're doing a Black History style episode. I know it's March 1st, but can we really get enough of Black History? And you haven't heard it my style. I promise you, you're going to like this. Because I reckon myself a pretty good uh, storyteller. Today's episode is just going to be me, but I figured we should include the kinks too. Tribidism is another term for lesbianism, and trichophilia is a hair fetish. Our perception of time is skewed in my opinion. We all learned about the Holocaust in school and how terrible it was, right? Some of us even read the diary of Anne Frank. I mean, I own a copy, but I've never actually read it. Why does any of this even matter in a black history episode? And what does it have to do with time? What if I told you Martin Luther King Jr., Anne Frank, Barbara Walters, and Barry Gordy were all born the same year? How does that make you feel? It made me feel a little odd, a little bit. They were all born in 1929. I picked four very notable people to say that history isn't as far away as the world may have us to believe. I will say, I did used to think that we only saw black and white photos of Anne Frank and MLK as some sort of photo suppression. I mean, photo suppression did happen, but not with color photos. It's just that color is more expensive. It existed but it was just more expensive and took longer to develop. Just wanted to put that out there. Everyone talks about MLK during Black History Month, but I thought we'd take it a little further. Remember I mentioned Anne Frank? Well, she died of typhus at 15. I know that feels like it was across the world, but if you look on a map, it really isn't. Martin Luther King Jr. was also 15. This man had just graduated high school. He was living his best life as a legacy at Morehouse College. He was drinking beer and playing pool. He wasn't worried about seminary. He was a sociology student. He was even in Glee Club. So he was really about that life at some point. He graduates. He goes to Crozer Seminary and meets a cafeteria worker, Betty Moitz, M-O-I-T-S, a German white lady. And they fall in love. The drama. I know. But ultimately, he was like, ma'am, I got love for you and all that. You'll always be my baby. But this is not where my life is headed. My father ain't gonna like me married to a white woman. My, they not gonna like that so we so we can't I love you forever though and he left with a broken heart it was awful they actually said he didn't recover and his father didn't like Coretta Scott anyway let's move on like I said he didn't get to be MLK without help today we're going to discuss the people that helped him that helped shape him however we're going to talk a little bit more about time we're going to set the scene Barry Gordy legendary founder of Motown Records was also born the same year as Martin Luther King now Barry Gordy was was a boxer prior that turned the, turned the cheek that Martin had going on. He was like, I don't know about that. But he still supported the movement. Because when MLK came to Detroit, he actually helped him with payroll. This was in June of 1963. He also put out King's spoken word LPs, including the Great March to Freedom, which was recorded in Detroit, because that's where it happened, and the Great March on Washington. I forgot to mention, Motown was born in 1959. So it was a relatively young company doing big things. I mean, for only four years in and, and they, they making moves like that, recording, they was about that life. But not as much as Ruby Bridges. 
down in NOLA, she was six years old or about to turn six. Don't you feel like an underachiever? I do. Ruby Bridges desegregated William France Elementary School in 1960. Just to make sure you're following, we're talking about 62 years ago. Think about who you know that's in their 60s and imagine them as a child. Seems far away, but not that far, right? Segregation and those white-only fountains are still around at this point. And it'll be another four years before that quote-unquote legally ended. The civil rights movement is gaining traction. It's 1963. What Will Mary Say by Johnny Mathis is on the radio. Johnny Mathis was bisexual. Let's like skirt skirt to 1982 real, real, real quick. Skirt skirt. He was quoted in a U.S. magazine saying, homosexuality is a way of life that I'm grown accustomed to. Then decades later, he was quoted having said, I come from San Francisco. It's not unusual to be gay in San Francisco. I've had some girlfriends. I've had some boyfriends, just like most people. At this point, we're at the peak of the civil rights movement. And you know who's helping? Gays, trans, and queer folk. Boom. Mic drop. But that would be unnecessary since you can't see me be dramatic and stuff. Anyway, they helping. Everyone likes to act like there's a sudden surge of non-straight people. The truth is, black LGBTQI plus people have been here advancing the movement for civil rights. We just kind of wrote them out of history. Example one. Baynard Rustin. I know you just didn't think, who? Well, actually, I'm not judging you because I didn't always know either, so we even. This man, let me tell you, he was about all the life, and he was in these streets making stuff happen. He organized the March on Washington in eight weeks without cell phones or email, just letters and phone calls. Woo, the stress. I cannot. Let's talk more about what he was doing that would lead him into this. He was born in 1912 in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I think we should have a moment of silence for Westchester, Pennsylvania, because I've been there and it's not on my list of places that I would go back to willingly. But no shade to the people that live there. He was raised by his grandparents with Quaker values. If you aren't familiar with Quakers, they're pacifists and they leave a really simple life, but not as simple as Amish people. They believe everyone is equal in God's eyes, and they were pretty much the abolitionists during slavery, and they've been involved in so many social justice movements throughout the years. Let's move on to his college days. He was in New York. He was 25, wildin'. He joined the Young Communist League because they had progressive views on racial issues, but he was like, oh, mm -mm, I'm out. When they was like, Soviets for WW, for, excuse me, for WW, for World War II. He skedaddled on the socialism and joined the Fellowship of Reconciliation, F.O.R., in 1941. They wanted peace, labor rights, and equality for all people. Except for the gays. They're lost, though. In 1944, he was arrested. My man was a conscientious objector, which means he refused to register for the draft, which meant jail time. In 1953, he was 41 and had been arrested many a times in the 10 years he worked for FOR. Then they fired him. He was out in Pasadena, California, living his best life, having car sex with a man because he was gay. And they arrested him and called it sex perversion. Flashback. In 1941, he was ready to run up on Washington then. And by run up, I mean an organized march. But this is a podcast. And y'all are here for the drama anyway. Don't act like you aren't. Because you love my storytelling. Because I do too. I'm entertaining myself. But let's keep going. In 1956, 
Martin Luther King is 27. My man got a gun license and a house full of guns. He had read Gandhi, but he wasn't fully committed. I feel that because I have my personal feelings about Gandhi. I think he was a racist. Anyway, Baynard Rustin shows up. He's there in support of the Montgomery bus boycott because, you know, that happened in 1956. And he's there with a few other pacifists to talk to Martin. Oh, quick tidbit about the bus boycott. We know Rosa Parks. She was 42, was like, I'm tired, I'm not getting up, leave me alone. But what if I told you there was people before her? 15-year-old Claudette Colvin. She didn't stand up, and this was nine months before Rosa Parks did it. But by the time the movement started getting up, Claudette was an unwed mother. She was 16 and pregnant. So she could no longer be the face, you know, respectability politics and whatnot. But even she was late. Because before Claudette was even born, there was Pauli Murray. But we'll get back. Back to Baynard. Like I said, he and a few other pastors were trying to get ML- MLK to fully commit to that life. Just so we're clear, a gay man was trying to convince and successfully convince Martin Luther King into pacifism. Let's keep going. King knew about Baynard's sexual orientation, but he overlooked it for the time being because Baynard had some skills that King did not. King was a rousing speecher, speaker, but he wasn't great at the organizing part. But Baynard Rustin had his back. That's when it becomes an issue because by this time, the civil rights movement is really ramping up. Now get this. This is, this is dirty. A.C. Powell was a black congressman representing Harlem. And he said, because they was about to march on the Democratic convention. He was like, your man Rustin's gay. And if you come up here, I'm going to tell everybody that Martin Luther King and Baynard Rustin are having an affair. And King was like, um, this was one of the few times he backed down out of fear. Let that be known. It was tragic, but MLK decided to distance himself from Baynard. Personally, I understand the greater good idea, but then I still don't like it. From 1960 to 1963, the movement saw little movement because Rustin was gone. Oh, I forgot to tell you something. They did fight back. Clarence Jones was a speechwriter, and he told Powell, if you go to the press with those lies, here's what I'm finna do. I'm finna go up to Harlem and litter it, litter it with posters of all the women you slept with. Boom. And A.C. Powell's like, Wait, 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 Mm-mm. Mm-mm. no, I'm sorry. My, my bad, dog, my bad. It's 1963, the movement's not moving like it should. Baynard Rustin, he's out here doing his thing, fighting the good fight. And they're like, we need you. And he, he was like, welcome back, baby. I'm not sure if he actually said that, but you know the sentiments there. Because King needed him. Now, the executive secretary of the NAACP at the time was, was Roy Wilkins. He was like, no, 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 not this one. He's a promiscuous Draft-dodging communists. They took him anyways, because they needed him. Wilkins had the words for you. It was spicy. Senator Strom Thurmond from South Carolina tries to say the same thing. And they're like, aha, we know. Because Martin Luther King decided to support Reston with his chest. This quote needs paraphrasing, but I'm just going to read it to you. And I want you to know that these aren't my words, so this is not plagiarism, because I'm telling you I didn't write this part. But this is how we'll close out, at least Baynard Reston's part. After King's assassination on April 4th, 1968, Rustin agreed to fly from Memphis to help lead the campaign in King's absence. However, leadership within the movement opposed to his involvement. I want to let you know that just to put it into perspective, Dr. Dre was only three years old when Martin Luther King was assassinated. That should show you it's not as far as people think. 
I was going to talk about how this person related to MLK and bring it full circle, but honestly, I believe they deserve their own section, a spotlight and gratitude. You'll understand why shortly. I give you Dr. Anna Pauline Pauli Murray, born 1910 in Baltimore. After her mother died when she was four, she moved to Durham, North Carolina, and she was raised by an open-minded aunt who affectionately called Murray, my boy girl. Before I dive in, I think we should acknowledge that Dr. Murray, well, I think you should know that Dr. Murray had what is now known as gender dysphoria, and no one can confirm it, but body dysmorphia. Those, that language didn't really exist in her time. She died in 1985. She was mixed-raced and attracted to women. She also dressed like a man. Based on what we know today, she was probably trans because after her death, letters were found from doctors rejecting her request for testosterone and gender-based care. Still, Dr. Pauli Murray is one of the most influential people you've probably never heard of. When I think shake the room, I think of her. She had been rejected time and time again for racist, no-colored-allowed reasons and for sexist men. But in 1941, at 31 years old, she finally enrolled at Howard University of Law. She was the only woman in her class. She wanted to become a civil rights attorney and left an unabashing feminist. Don't roll your eyes. Wait until you hear, hear my episode on sex and feminism. She graduated in 1944 as valedictorian, but was denied the prestigious fellowship normally given to valedictorians simply based on her sex. She did everything she was supposed to do and was still rejected because she was a woman. I know some of you are probably thinking, well, why does it matter if she was trans or she wanted to be a man? It doesn't matter because if you did everything you were supposed to do, it shouldn't matter what's in your pants. She's not practicing law with a penis. Doesn't really matter. Moving on. She felt slighted. I probably would have too. Let's be real. Every, anybody would have felt slighted by that. So she had to change where she went to law, where she went to grad school and an additional grad school. She ended up going to Yale and she went to Berkeley. Because of this experience at Howard, she coined the term Jane Crow in relation to sexual discrimination, excuse me, sex discrimination, which is the sister to Jim Crow, which is racial discrimination. Polly was an icon. While she was in law school, she led a group of students to the Little Palace Cafe in 1943 and conducted a lunch counter sit-in. This was a full 17 years before the lunch counter sit-ins that we always hear about in the 1960s in Greensboro, North Carolina. So that's 17 years before the Greensboro incident would draw national attention. This woman was fantastic. She founded the Congress of Racial Inequality, or CORE, with Baynard Rustin, remember him? In the early 1940s. If I'm correct, she was still in law school or just recently graduated. This is when it starts to get hinky, in my opinion. Murray's final law school paper outlined an idea. So this means she was a senior in law school writing this. She said, why not challenge the separate in the separate but equal legal document, that's Plessy versus Ferguson, and argue that segregation was unconstitutional. She expounded on her paper in a 1951 book called State's Law on Race and Color. In 1953, we were all getting ready for the trial for Brown versus the Board of Education. That's the case that desegregated schools, for those of you that didn't know. Everyone was prepping this. And this is 10 years after Pauli graduated from law school. So her professor thinks about, he was thinking that he's looking for legal strategies, looking for stuff. He digs up her paper. Keep in mind, she was the only woman in her class and they didn't want to give, give her her due for, for being valedictorian. But they dig up her paper to use during Brown versus the Board of Education. And they used it as legal strategy. That's how profound and advanced her ideas were. So... I shouldn't say so, but 
That's how I'm going to transition here. Her work was so good that the NAACP attorney, Thurgood Marshall, later called it the Bible for civil rights attorneys after he used it arguing Brown versus the Board of Education. They used her paper, her work, her thoughts, her idea as legal strategy. She was not credited for her work nor her ideas in this landmark, life-changing case. And this was just the beginning of her career. She worked another 30 years. Remember, she was born in 1910, and this was 1953. In 1961, she was appointed to JFK's Commission on the Status of Women. In 1965, she co-authored Jane Crow and the Law, Sex Discrimination, and Title VII. Basically, the Equal, the equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment. Now, let's be real. I can't quote you what the 14th Amendment is, so don't feel bad. That amendment should be applied to sex discrimination as well. She was saying, like she was saying earlier, sex-based discrimination is the same as racial discrimination in Jim Crow. Y'all remember everyone talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Ruth Bader Ginsburg, RBG, as everyone was calling her. At this point, it's the 1970s. And she's arguing Reed versus Reed in front of the Supreme Court. She successfully used the 14th Amendment to argue against sex discrimination. And she cited Pauli. When the brief turned out to be famous, she listed Pauli as a co-author. Isn't that fantastic? Pauli was the first person of color to receive a law doctorate at Yale, which is a JSD. She joined James Baldwin as one of the first black writers in the prestigious McDowell Colony. In 1977, she became the first black female Episcopalian priest. She was sainted by the Episcopalian church in 2012. If you take anything away from this, take the fact that Dr. Paula Murray was so far advanced that when history was written, they left her out of it because they didn't know she was at the beginning of it all, that we do things because of her. She had a longtime partner, a Miss Irene Barlow. And I'll leave you with this. Paula Murray wrote in The Liberation of the Black Woman, 1970, if anyone should ask a Negro woman in America, what has been her greatest achievement? Her honest answer would be, I survived. I know this episode was a little bit unorthodox, but I hope you followed along and I hope you got something from it. Okay, this is where I plug myself. You know the spiel. If you like it, tell everybody. Like, comment, subscribe, share, share, share. Tell a friend to tell a friend. If you don't like it, shh, tell me. I understand. I'm listening. Let's talk about what you don't like. You can even text me at 707-I-M-N-O-I-R-E. You can email me if you want to be a guest or for any other reason at guest at com. I am on Twitter, Instagram. I'm working on getting my social media presence up. Like, just as hard as I'm working on not saying like. It's hard. Anyway, this was the Kinky Heaton Podcast. I appreciate you. Toodles poodles. <laughs>